Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute, and I want to welcome you all to our April Conservative Women's Network Lunch. I want to give a special thanks to our co-host, the Heritage Foundation, uh, represented today by Lori Mashburn, who is Heritage Relations, Coalition Relations Associate, um, hosting today. And now I'm happy to introduce our speaker today, Diana West. She's been a journalist since graduating from Yale, and she began writing a weekly newspaper column in 1999 at the Washington Times, where she also wrote editorials. The column soon went into syndication with Scripps Howard, and later the Newspaper Enterprise Association of United Media. A collection of her columns came out in 2013 titled, No Fear, Selected Columns from America's Most Politically Incorrect Columnist. Diana is the author of the books, this is a great one, American Betrayal, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character. And she'll be signing copies of this uh, after her remarks. We'll sell some of these also. And also, The Death of the Grown-Up, How America's Arrested Development is Bringing Down Western Civilization. In 2013, Diana brought out a companion volume to American Betrayal that was titled The Rebuttal, Defending American Betrayal from the Book Burners, which include essays from Stan Evans and Vladimir Bukowski. It was a controversial book among some, which surprised me because I had started to read it before I learned that, and she's going to talk a little bit about that. Her recent honors include the 2014 Hero of Conscience Award from the American Freedom Alliance and the Center for Security Policy's 2013 Mightier Pen Award. And this book, American Betrayal, was also showcased at the 2013 gathering of the Pumpkin Papers Irregulars, a club of intelligence experts and writers that meets every Halloween in Washington, D.C. You know, I always get invited to that, but then you can't give the kids candy, so I can never go to that. It's Halloween night. It's a great little operation. And this year, Newsmax named Diana's blog, which is dianawest.net, one of the top 50 conservative blogs. She's also one of 19 co-authors of Sharia, The Threat to America, a 2010 publication of the Center for Security Policy. Her works have appeared in many publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Times, the Weekly Standard, and the Washington Post magazine, and her fiction has appeared in Atlantic Monthly. She's done a lot of television, documentary, and radio appearances, and she blogs, as I said, at dianawest.net. I hope you'll all take a look at that. What are her hobbies, I asked her. She gardens, and she renovates her home in Northwest D.C. She loves children and all kinds of dogs. She's the mother of 22-year-old twins, and she's been married to her husband for 28 years. He's a journalist turned editor. Please join me in welcoming Diana West. Thank you very much. Can everyone hear me? Is this uh, maybe a little better? I'm, um, I'm very delighted to be here at the Claire Booth Luce Institute especially, and I would like to begin by just sharing my own almost harmonic convergence with Mrs. Luce many years ago when I was at the Washington Times. Before I joined the editorial page in an earlier incarnation, I was a reporter, a feature writer, um, a movie critic at some point, covered campaigns. It was a great place to work in the 1980s when I was starting out. And uh, I mainly worked for the old feature section there, the Capital Life section, which is sadly not there anymore. Uh, it, was, it was similar, modeled along the lines of the Washington Post, but of course better or different in that it, it profiled people the Washington Post would never consider. So it, it did have uh, open up the town a bit more to more debate, to more personalities, to more ideas. And one day, and I don't remember, I don't remember the, the subject of my profile, but I had the lead story on the front of this section. And if any of you have worked at the Washington Times or been out there, you know it's a, it's a beautiful, gigantic, cavernous newsroom, open newsroom, no, 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 cubic, no doors, no, no little walls, just open with the National Arboretum, uh, one wall of windows. It's just, it's really quite stunning. And then there's a mezzanine level where the editor-in-chief at the time had his office. 
And that at the time was Arnaud de Borgrave, who sadly recently, a legend, who recently passed away earlier this year. Um, but at this point, I would say it was probably 1986 or something like that. I was probably about 24 years old or something. And I had this story, and I was sitting at my desk, and suddenly I hear across the newsroom this little voice that pierced the newsroom calling my name, Diana, Diana. I turn around, I, that's exactly how it sounded, and I see this figure on the mezzanine coming out of the elevator with Arno. Arno was always having innumerable famous dignitaries and personages from around the world in Washington. And people started whispering, that's Claire Booth Luce. And she's waving at me with a gloved, she had white gloves on, sunglasses, little lady waving Diana. And I put my hand out and I waved back. And she was holding my story in her hands. And, and that's the end of the story. It doesn't go any farther. But it was, it was a great moment um, of recognition. I, I wrote her a note afterwards. Um, I think she may have even passed away not too long after that. But it was a thrill. And so that's what makes being here today something very special. Um, it, 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 it was uh, just something quite memorable from those days. Um, now, when Camille invited me to speak, she ticked off a few points, what she would like me to discuss. Uh, my book, my recent book, American Betrayal, uh, the ongoing research developing from that. Also, uh, I was at the Heritage Foundation not too long ago after M. Stanton Evans died, the late, great M. Stanton Evans. I, I spoke at his memorial service here, and so she asked me to sort of include something about that as well. Maybe a little modern foreign policy, which has often been my meat in my syndicated column. Um, and also, she said, and the notion that conservatives need to do their own research. And I kind of honed, honed in on, on that last point in particular. All of these points, of course, are my daily concern. And, but this seemed like a very good way to sort of um, frame what I wanted to say today. It's not conservative research. And she didn't say that. Not conservative research. But research by conservatives. And <clears throat> this relates directly to Stanton Evans, a noted conservative, but also a noted journalist. He was a fantastic journalist who followed the facts where they led him. And this is a very important concept. And over the years, I've, I've been a journalist, I can now say, in Washington for 30 years, amazingly enough. I have often encountered the, the opposite meaning. Well, I would like to quote, bring in a quote from um, the great historian Robert Conquest, whose work I, I very much drew from in American Betrayal. He said, not even high intelligence and a sensitive spirit are of any help once the facts of a situation are deduced from a political theory and not vice versa. So in other words, that an ideology does not select the facts. The facts lead you to make, draw conclusions, to, to make judgments. And this seems like an elementary idea, but I've encountered very often quite the opposite. And I would say that across the political spectrum. It's something we associate with ideologues on the left. But I've, I've seen it in conservative journalism as well. And I, I just thought that that was nice that she phrased it in terms of conservatives doing their own research. I think that we, all of us who've gone to college know that the left does occupy the academy. Um, every time a presidential campaign comes along, we are reminded in very stark terms. I mean, you can observe this every day, but usually people, people who don't usually pay attention notice that the left sets the terms of the national debate. Candidates on the right usually find themselves defensively responding to um, terms, talking points, concerns from the left. Um, war on women is, is something that, that we could look to for that. No, I'm not declaring a war on women. You know, you're always kind of off on, the, um, off on the defensive. And I wouldn't say that these narratives and academic territories have been ceded to the left. They were seized by the left. Why did this happen? Did it have to happen? What, how did this happen? I mean, these are sort of questions that frame some of my my own excursions into the uh, archives. And I think that the, um, the result is, and, and this will sound quite shocking, I think, 
to people who have not been sort of immersed in the, the research I've been immersed in, and this is something Stanton Evans and I talked about quite, quite a lot in his final years, the, the lack of context that people tend to have in terms of approaching these matters. But I will make a statement and try to back it up and offer my book as, as, as proof that the history we've inherited as our understanding of, of who we are, what we've done as a people, what we've done in the world as a country, um, is very much bogus. It's very much a false narrative. And this was something that I stumbled upon really quite innocently, not looking for it, when I was researching American Betrayal. I found it very destabilizing. And in fact, the book is written in the first person as a historical excursion backward in time, sort of then I found this, then I found this, then I found this, because I found, as I had encountered it, to enter into the past and sort of try to reconstruct some of these things that have been lost to us, it was necessary to take it step by step by step. And so this is why the book itself is constructed almost as a detective story in some ways to lead the reader on and to prepare the reader for what comes. Because, again, I was not prepared, but it, it, it is something that, that um, becomes, I think, a useful technique in storytelling. Um, <clears throat> so why was it destabilizing? How did I find this out? What am I talking about? And I would like to preface my answer by saying my, my first book, The Death of the Grown-Up, came out in 2007. And it was largely my attempt to describe um, really a long arc of social and moral decline, cultural decline, that seemed to have a very urgent application for me in terms of writing about it after 9-11 in terms of <clears throat> why we'd become a society that seemed incapable of having a grown-up conversation about Islam. How did this happen? Um, I was an editorial writer at the time of 9-11 at the Times and um, was studying along with everyone else uh, what, what Islam was, what, what had happened to us, and came to some very concrete conclusions that were very documentable that definitely undermined what I was hearing all around me. Islam is a religion of peace. I mean come on, it, doesn't, it didn't add up. And it doesn't add up once you look at the law, once you look at the history, you look at the history of conquest, the um, various um, injunctions within Islam to conquer, to put people under Islamic law, which we're seeing in very stark terms now um, in the Middle East. Um, so while I was working these issues through, I found that my, my peers, looking in the political world, it was quite hopeless. So this is kind of what I was trying to do to understand the evolution of what I would consider and what I, I argue is a big lie, one of these big lies in society, Islam being a religion of peace. So trying to understand that how we get to a point where we tell each other lies, in this case, George Bush, our president, telling us lies, basic elementary disprovable things. And about this time, I'd written my book, came up with this theory, um, which that's kind of it in a, a bit of a nutshell, or a very small nutshell. And I picked up a copy, just by chance, Blacklisted by History by Stanton Evans, had come out in, in 2007 as well. <clears throat> and I picked it up. It's called Blacklisted by History, The Untold Story of Senator Joe McCarthy and His Fight Against America's Enemies. And I knew next to nothing about Joseph McCarthy, except, of course, that he was the worst person in American history. No one, not even Richard Nixon, comes close to his place in the hierarchy or lowerarchy of, of, of devils, just at the bottom. I mean, you can look at this to this day. You, you know, the man died in 1957 at age 48. But all these years later, practically, I mean, practically 60 years later, we are looking at the headlines last week, I think it was, when Harry Reid was asked about just making things up about uh, Mitt Romney on the, on the floor of the Senate. And if you remember that story about how um, uh, he, said he, he just said that Romney had not paid taxes for years. And he had no proof. And then when he was giving an interview recently to CNN, Dana Bash asked him about that. Um, and he just sort of said, well, you know, he didn't win, did he? You know, as in ends justify the means. And this was termed for people to understand in, in 2015 as McCarthyism or McCarthyite behavior. In other words, launching baseless charges to damage people is this thing, McCarthyism. 
to say this couldn't be further from the truth is, you know, a simple statement and requires so much study, but fortunately Stan Evans provided, provided us with this. Um, it's a truly remarkable book, and I remember reading it um, page by page, watching him unravel these lies that society had been telling about Senator McCarthy that involved unbelievable detective work. I mean, the kinds of things he had to do to reconstruct an archive of primary source documents. Um, many of things, you know, if you remember some few years ago, there was a scandal involving Sandy Berger from the Clinton administration who walked out of the National Archives with, you know, class precious documents that belonged to the people of the United States in his pants and his socks. We all thought that was something unique, at least I did. It was certainly portrayed that way, but this, our archives are riddled with holes. People have taken things along the years, and what Stan found when he was researching um, this McCarthy book, which he was researching really for decades, um, was that the archives on McCarthy, on communism, on communist penetration, have been ransacked. There are many, many, many important hearings, executive session documents that would now be declassified, files of all kinds that are, on, that are listed in you know, directories and so on, and when you get the, the, the archivist to bring it out, I'm sorry, it's not there. Mystery, you know, unsolved mystery, but a fact that it is not there. So what he was doing in writing this book was not just writing a cogent story based on archives, he was finding the archives. Um, which is, is really a superhuman feat. And he revealed something new and different underneath. And I have to say, I was just really transfixed by this. And in terms of trying to understand you know, my thoughts, like why are we living through this period where people can't seem to have this conversation about Islam, I'm just gonna use that as an example. There, there are many others. You know, is this, was this period, is the McCarthy period, the 1950s, where this took place? Is this where we can focus in and see how this went down, how this happened? And um, another question I would throw out there is, if we got everything wrong virtually about McCarthy, certainly the essence of the man, what he did, what he stood for, what else do we get wrong? Are there other, I mean, if this something that big and that commonly known can be wrong, what else is wrong? These were the kinds of things that um, triggered my research odyssey, which, which was a quite, quite, I started the book in 2009 and it, it came out in 2013. Um, another question that also was kind of pushing me along the way was, why is it that we have rightly condemned Nazism, obviously, to the ash heap of history, and yet communism doesn't get the same laser focus, doesn't get the same opprobrium, doesn't get the same condemnation, even though when we, when we add up the, the deaths, the murders in the gulags around the world that, that we can attribute to communism, it's a conservative estimate of 100 million dead due to this ideology. And yet, it's never as present as our, our, our feelings or documentation or focus as Nazism. So what, these were kinds of double standards, looking at how we, these narratives um, are constructed. These are the things that were driving American betrayal. But I, I soon learned that um, it wasn't just the 1950s. We couldn't, it was definitely something was already going on. A clue to that came when I learned that everything that was said about Senator McCarthy, and of course he was not the only investigator. You had congressmen and senators of both parties investigating communist subversion and infiltration into the federal government and elsewhere um, in this period, but he becomes the symbol. There, you know, that's just kind of the shorthand for it. But I found that a good 10, 12 years earlier, there was a Democratic congressman named Martin Dyes, who everything that was said about McCarthy was said about him. So we're moving back in time here What's going on? You know, what was what was happening? Why would this um, why would this be? Then, meanwhile, I'm trying to kind of reckon the information that became very um, patently clear confirmation, really, in the 1990s with document releases by governments in Russia and the United States that give us a tally of at least. 500 Soviet agents in the federal government in the middle of the last century and related institutions. So you're looking at this, it existed, it was happening, and this denial, and you know, just trying to understand this. And then I came across a quotation um, 
that was written also in 1938 when uh, Martin Dyes opened up. He was the ch founding chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee, which is you know, another one of these excoriated uh, bodies, but they did tremendously great investigations without which we would know very little about what happened. But one of, um, in 1938, a man, a man who'd been a socialist, a brilliant ex-socialist named J.B. Matthews wrote in some kind of a essay, he wrote, um, he was talking about being smeared for the crime of red baiting. And he said, red baiting is the best trick ever invented short of a firing squad for making short work of anybody who dares to object to communist theories and practices. If he is not effectively silenced, he is at least thoroughly discredited among the vast flock of citizens who enjoy thinking of themselves as liberal. Does this sound familiar? I mean, this kind of demonization, the name calling, in olden days, we can say red baiting, stop debate, stopped investigation, put people on the defensive. If we look in terms of the post 9-11 age, the word Islamophobia or Islamophobe would serve the same purpose. Then I started looking at similarities between Islam and communism. May not strike people immediately as a, as a match given that communism does not have a godhead. Um, however, it's its adherents are very practically religiously zealous about their faith in communism. But these are both totalitarian, both collectivist ideologies. Very similar in terms of drive to conquest. Um, their animus uh, toward the individual, their control of the individual, individual conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of, of speech. And very similar in terms of an ends justif justify the means philosophy. Thou, there is no thou shalt not lie in Islam. And you could say the same about Marxism-Leninism. It's, it's always about advancing the power. So then, as I'm looking, I'm finding, I'm reading all manner of things, really going footnote to footnote. And the book um, probably couldn't have been written without the internet in the sense that you can buy almost, you can find so many old out-of-print books with just a flick of, of a click. <laughs> um, it's very easy to, to amass a library that before the internet would take a lot of physical labor just to go to the library and call the books in and, and so on. Um, but you can actually own it for relatively um, modest prices. So I'm reading and reading and I'm finding, this was a very big moment, I'm finding um, amazing similarities between the US government campaign to whitewash Islam in our time to the United States government campaigns under FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, to whitewash communism, particularly of course during World War II when we were in alliance. There was a wartime censorship. Um, not a single, just to give you an example, not a single communist critical book was published during the years of this alliance. In fact, some were canceled. In fact, some had review copies out and were pulled. Now, that wasn't a government operation. There, this was a movement. There was great sympathy in, in um, what, what, you know, what was going on. There were a lot of sympathies with the Soviet Union. Um, this was a book, actually, it was kind of amazing. It was a bi the, uh, Trotsky's Biography of Stalin. Trotsky had been, he was Stalin's rival, he lived in Mexico, he was violently assassinated while he was writing this biography of Stalin. In fact, the, the pages, his, he was killed, I must have been in his study, or he en entered his study, the, the, the manuscript actually had blood on it and was messed up during the, the um, it's a terrible thought, during lunch. But um, they actually had to reconstruct this book, his dying book, and they published it, Harper and Brothers at the time, was the name of Harper and uh, whatever it's called now, Harper. And um, the books were out with reviewers. And when war was declared, the, the, he actually wrote a letter to all the people who had the books out and said, please, could you return the books, because it was critical of Stalin, could you return the books and don't say anything about it? Which was pretty, pretty astonishing in terms of um, people's ability to know and think and, and, and write and express themselves. So, so where does all this come from? And I argue, I decided that I could make the argument that there is a mechanism we can look at as well as there's a larger movement to understand. The mechanism here, I think it's a very crucial date in our history that is mostly unknown, which is November 16th, 1933. And don't feel bad if it doesn't light a light, a, a light bulb here because it, it's, it's not taught, it's not thought of, but this was the date on which uh, America normalized relations with the Soviet Union. This was under Franklin Roosevelt. This was reversing the policy of four presidents and six secretaries of state before. 
who were preceded since the Russian Revolution. And what's fascinating about the documents that actually led to, oh, and by the way, we're talking about Iran and treaties like that, it did not go to, it did not go to the Senate. This was an arrangement state to state. It was an exchange of notes. The notes are shockingly brief. I mean, they're, they're just a few pages, really. Um, there were negotiations about debt and about the rights of Americans in, in the Soviet Union uh, to worship, uh, have freedom of religion. Um, but one of the crux of it was the Soviet Union had to promise not to support, support or engage in subversion, agitation, propaganda, spying, <clears throat> anything inside the United States. And what's significant about that is this was already going on. The Soviets already were in an intelligence war against us, a secret war. And this became the mechanism by which this, this whole operation could expand. And it did. And so these, this was an empty promise, the first of umpteen empty, you know, uh, immeasurable empty promises with the Soviets. Um, but for, for me, in examining it and looking back and trying to figure out when we get to this point where our government starts um, living in an alternate reality, in order to maintain diplomatic relations with Stalin's regime in Moscow, based on these promises, and the other promises were also flouted, but this very particular one about really a war against us, a secret covert war, our officials had to look the other way. They had to lie about what was going on. They had to eliminate people from the you know, public life who saw what was going on. They had to minimize the whole thing. The, the relationship becomes increasingly important as, as you watch um, it go by, and, and this is something I go through in, in American Betrayal. Um, it, it really seems to me that you can start seeing the rise of double standards in public life because you have one policy for this set of circumstances, one policy for another. You start seeing, I also maintain, all manner of ills regarding just veracity, truth-telling. Um, you come to different realities, moral relativism, cultural relativism. I think all of these things don't necessarily come from that signing on the dotted line, but what this introduced into public behavior, and of course public behavior is also private behavior. You know, we don't know everything that's going on, and it, it, has, it has ripple effects. Um, it's, it becomes, I think, a very seismic moment, and... Um, relates to something I'll get to just in modern times, just when I can conclude. Um, so this is a very important moment. Then with the larger movement, what this did was it made it very easy for co ideological communists, Soviet agents, fellow travelers, and so on, to enter this exploding, burgeoning government that was in Washington. I mean, we did not have a large government before the 1930s. It was relatively small. Um, under, in the Depression years, all the emergency measures that Franklin Roosevelt took, there was, I'm sure you know, all manner of new agencies and so on, and offices and bureaus to deal with various things and essentially to control and try to control the economy and, and all of that. This is where they came in, and this is what we can now document. So my other mechanism for writing this book, which was that I began to notice as I was looking for information with all the most current histories that I figured would reflect all this new knowledge, it didn't really exist. Indeed, if you go to the bookstore or, or browse online, the latest uh, books about the Roosevelt years, World War II, the Cold War, biographies, Yalta, Eisenhower, you know, the whole mid-century deal, the Cold War, you will not find this reckoning of the intelligence history I'm describing, this covert intelligence war by Americans loyal to Stalin entering the government and affecting policy, not just stealing secrets, but actually influencing the movement of the American ship of state. I mean, it's very serious stuff, but it shocked me that even though this information has been with us since the 90s, it has not really been dealt with, which is pretty much what I do in American Betrayal, and that's what I set out to do. Um, Everything looks very different, which is why the book is so shocking. When you know that there are Soviet agents in the White House, 
the president's top aides, Lachlan Curry, for example, Soviet agent, straight up, confirmed. His assistant, Soviet agent, straight up, confirmed. They were in charge of very important policies having to do with China, which, of course, went communist after World War II. I mean, th it's not accidental. And you can start tracing back and looking at different, um, you know, all manner of, of events um, that we can now look at more easily. But back in the 50s, back during McCarthy days and the other investigators um, on the Hill and in the FBI, they were seeing a lot of this. I mean, they, they were trying to figure out what was going on. But they were. this is what the whole post-Roosevelt, post-Truman, or late, late Truman, say from 1948 forward, this is what that whole period that we are taught was a red scare as if it was completely made up and everyone was crazy who thought there was anything going on. But this is what the, the um, context for those investigative hearings and so on were all about. I mean, when I learned about them first or vaguely knew about them, I can't say I ever studied them before this period of, of research, you always had this feeling like they were just randomly hauling people up for no particular reason and grilling them. And you always hear when they show the, you know, the banging gavel and all that. It just seemed very strange. But there is a context for it. And now we can actually match up names and faces to people who used to deny involvement with their record that comes out of KGB archives um, or American archives intercepting KGB things, FBI releases that were also um, very much in terms of the timing coming out in the 90s from FBI files, declassified congressional hearings, and so on. You can start weaving it all together, which is what American Betrayal, I keep turning it around, which is what American Betrayal um, does. And it is strange. I mean, why would I have anything new to say about World War II or the Cold War after all the hundreds of books have been written? Thousands, I'm sure. Um, but this is why. This mechanism has not really been set off, triggered. And, um, you know, try it. Look up Alger Hisp, the most famous arch agent. You know, there are hundreds more, but he's the one many people still know about. You won't see in dealings of, say, for example, Yalta, you won't see emphasized um, the fact that he was a Soviet military agent, military intelligence agent, GRU. And after Yalta actually picked up an award in Moscow, from the Soviets, that is, of course, after the Yalta Agreement, which was the uh, final meeting of Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill at, at the end of World War II. Why isn't that in your textbooks? I mean, seriously, this is, this is now fact that we've had for some time now. So this is what American Betrayal tries to do. Um, and then when we come back to McCarthy, which was um, Stan's uh, magnus opus, it, it sets all of this into more context, and you understand that Yes, there was a conspiracy. There was a cons it was immense. It was absolutely immense. I mean, when you actually think about, and I've been working on this actually, where these people were, what they were doing, how many of them were in the federal workforce every day in rush hour, you know, going to work up on the hill or at the treasury building or wherever it was. Um, it's an astonishing thing not to know more about. And this blank in our past, I think, sets us up for failure to this day, because when you don't understand your past, you, f you are unable to, to, to grab hold of problems and really at least attempt to fix them. Um, it's, it's the reason why there needs to come back to the point at the beginning. It is the reason why there needs to be more research. Don't ever think that it's all been done. It, it, there is so much crying out to do. There are archives ripe for the plucking. I mean, it's, it's really incredible what we have at our fingertips. It's not popular. It's not necessarily popular, although I would say I've been happy American Betrayal has been a popular, popular book with readers, even if not with what I would call the elites, some elites. Um, so this, this is um, important to know, because it doesn't all start with President Obama. These predicaments we're in, these, these movements we're in. Um, I did want to just quickly close by bringing a little bit into the, 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 the present and thinking about that 1933 agreement that meant nothing. And yet, when Ronald Reagan came into office, one of the first things he did was he asked his people to do a 25-year review of arms control agreements with the Soviet Union. What kind of compliance he wanted to know could we point to after, you know, he arbitrarily picked 25 years, it could have been more. Um, of course, I mean, you can guess, there was virtually no compliance on the Soviet side. These, these were just paper agreements, just like um, at the very beginning. It was no change. 
makes you wonder about the act of these negotiations and what's going on. And it made me think about the current negotiations we've been watching in Iran as the uh, Obama administration sits down with a system that is not unlike the communist system in these notions of, for example, they seem to think that they negotiate as equals if everyone has the same kind of pencil and water bottle at the table. I mean, they sit there, I look at those bottles, I think that doesn't make you negotiating as equals. When we sit down, let me tell you how at much at a disadvantage the Westerners are. Under Islamic, Shiite, particularly supremacist doctrine, we are najis, we are unclean. Najis is the word for unclean. There's a list of, I think it's 10 unclean things that include all kinds of unpleasant um, uh, bodily fluids and uh, non-Muslims, dogs, pigs, things like that. Um, that's how they're looking at you. Then, as we mentioned earlier, no, thou shalt not lie. Now, a Westerner trying to enter into negotiations is that's kind of at the back because of our culture, because of where we come from. That's kind of what you're thinking. If you're really having, you know, person-to-person -person negotiations, you're thinking you're, you're going to make an agreement. You're going to shake hands, and it's going to be a good agreement. And that's not the way it goes. And then our goal, we hope, I, you know, in the best case scenario, our goal is peace. Our goal is not a state of war. Our goal is not nuclear weapons being dropped on our allies or anyone else. Um, Jihad is in the Iranian constitution in terms of it being a, an organizing framework for their uh, military policies. Jihad to spread Islamic law. So right away you are not at the same table and yet our people persist um, in these kinds of uh, alternate realities. Normalizing the abnormal um, is one way of thinking it also. And I, I find it very similar to this notion of sitting down that began 80 years ago with the similar kind of totalitarian collectivist entity and thinking that it's going to be um, a happy agreement. And it, again, it d involves the same kinds of acts of denial. So I guess, um, I guess that what I'm, I'm hoping to do is, is spark further interest and um, open up perhaps a, a slightly different way of, of looking at the whole act of seeking facts and drawing conclusions, making judgments, making judgments that has a very bad odor in our time. We're not supposed to make judgments, but I don't know how you survive without making judgments every day. Um, you want to make moral judgments. And again, these kinds of, of false uh, narratives, these kinds of false engagements introduce immorality into everything we do. So this is kind of a big order you know, to try to change such things. But I think that hope can Hope is always important, but hope can be blind. And what what I hope to <laughs> what I hope to to do and 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 help with is encourage sunshine and clarity because you you just can't work forward until you draw away some of these blinders and um, not be afraid to do it. And that with that, I will conclude. Thank you very much. I have to say, I grew up in a family where when we didn't like somebody, we'd say, what a commie he is. You know? There you go. <laughs> but so many young people just don't have the experience with it. Um, and that's why your book is so valuable. It's a wonderful book. Well, thank you. Um, and I hope you'll all consider reading it. Because if you didn't live during that time, you don't, you don't realize how fearful we were as Americans. And what we didn't know. What we didn't know was happening here. Right. Yeah. And back in the war, I mean, even I wasn't around then. Yeah. But our parents, um, and some of them suspected. Yes. But they were considered crazy. Right. Um, this is a wonderful book. When the Soviet archives opened up, so much of what these people have been saying was proven to be true. Right. <laughs> it's a great thing. We have a little bit of time for questions. Uh, do we have a mic, or maybe we don't need one? Oh, we do. Here's a mic. If you wouldn't mind, uh, raise your hand and give your affiliation and then let the mic come to you, because we're taping this for people who couldn't come. My name is Bailey. My name is Bailey, and I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. And so when you mention November of 1933, I can't help but think of December of 
2014 with um, President Obama proposing a normalization of relations with Cuba. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you draw any similarities between your extensive research on um, the deception with the Soviet Union and the country immediately to the south of our of our border. Yes, exactly. That's a good question. And yes, I mean, there. Yes, that's exactly the right um, cue. And the 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 operative word here is normalizing, because Cuba did not change. You know, people aren't free in, to, in Cuba suddenly, because we have normalized. We have, if you will, dumbing normalization down. There, there, there's no. Um, there's no movement toward freedom or liberty, and yet the policy is to normalize. When you, people don't think about the Roosevelt administration in those terms though, but this probably is the, um, the seedbed for that when you think about it. In, in, this, in, the, in the early 30s in the Soviet Union, we see the Ukraine terror famine take place in which the state purposefully starved to death millions of people in the Ukraine, five, six, seven, maybe more millions of people. So you see America normalizing these relations at a, at a point where, um, if you scramble history a little, imagine a country normalizing relations with Nazi Germany in 1945 on the heels of the Holocaust. It's a very, there's a parallel to be drawn in, in terms of that. So what he's doing is, is, is morally wrong and is part of this, this, this the same movement, and I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see it happen in North Korea. Hi, uh, my name is Renee with the Heritage Foundation, and um, the question here uh, pointed obviously to some, and you referenced as well, discussions with Iran and discussions with Cuba. Uh, we're looking at an administration change in a couple years, and if uh, the White House stays in the hands of the Democrats, it, I suppose it's likely we could continue to see that trend continue. Do you think that a change of party in the administration at the White House level would reverse some of these things and be able to undo some of the damage, or has it gone to the point beyond repair? Like what's the prognosis for the next yeah. president? Well, of course, it depends on, on who the next president is. It certainly could be uh, a Republican who did not reverse these things. One thing, when you do look back, it's very hard to reverse things. Or No, I should rephrase that. I don't think it's hard. I don't think it's hard to reverse things, but they, they rarely are. And it seems that this comes to um, um, a really discussion of backbone and and more than just nuts and bolts mechanics. It's interesting after, um, when you think about it, if, if FDR came in, in 19, with his inauguration in 1933 and um, Harry Truman continued on, there was a 20 year, um, or continued on for 20 years, you had 20 years of Democrats in the White House, that meant that all of these policies were, were really only 20 years. I mean, it's not that old, really. And it's interesting to see how people ran on reversing things in the late 40s, Republicans I'm speaking of, reversing some of uh, many aspects, rolling back New Deal aspects. Um, Harry Truman wanted to nationalize health, very much like Obamacare. I mean, it's, it's, these things go round and round. I mean, this, these are things that happen, but they don't tend to get reversed. Now, in terms of state-to-state -state relations, I think that probably is more um, possible to see reversals in those kinds of things just because foreign policies do differ. So there probably is um, possibilities with that. There certainly should be, um, but again, you know, we had this deal going back to the 30s. We had a deal. Martin Dyes brought up all the infractions the Soviet Union had made in these dealings in negotiations in probably by about 1940 or 19. 39, when the Soviets were actually allies with the Nazis, so they weren't even in good odor over here, um, but couldn't, couldn't break, couldn't give a pause. So it's very difficult, and I guess it does depend on grassroots uh, once again. And, um, but yes, I will not say never say never. It, it certainly could be reversed. Diana, when your book came out, we talked a little about this yeah. earlier. Some surprising people were very distressed at your factual recitation. Very distressed. <laughs> and attacked the book. Can you talk a little about that? Sure, and Why sure. you think that happened? 
why? Why is a little harder, but I can, I can explain what happened. Actually, it, it, it came about some time after the book came. The book came out in May of 2013 um, to very um, warm reception, very warm reviews, um, happy book tour and all that. Uh, and then in August of that year, the book was the victim of a um, crazed savaging that began at front page and spread out kind of around the conservative blogosphere. And um, the, it, there was a, a, a review, if you can call it that, it was actually described by its author as a takedown of my book um, that ran 7,000 words at Front Page Magazine, which of course is David Horowitz's um, website. And he joined in the fray and they, they must have written uh, a dozen pieces between in, in a very short time, I mean, I kept, I got, actually got used to seeing my name in headlines, <laughs> which was one nice thing about it, but it was very strange because once I, and that's why I brought the, um, my second book, which is sort of the caboose of American betrayal, it's called The Rebuttal. And uh, what happened was there were so many charges about the book, the contents of the book, about me, it was very much ad hominem attacks as well. And when I began to look at them, because I had to rebut them, and I actually was expecting a great debate. I mean, my book claims, argues, that we did not win the Cold War. I don't think we did. I don't see how, I would say, yes, one of the military armies walked off the field and seemed to dissolve, at least temporarily. However, at home, our college campuses are outposts of Marx, and we're dealing with Obamacare. So how do you say we won an ideological victory? Those are just a couple of points. So it makes this argument in other ways as well. And I also have a very different take on World War II, the so-called good war. Again, going back to these notions of who was really affecting policy and why was it at the end of the war, yes, Hitler was gone and, and hallelujah, and yet half of Europe was not free. The countries we'd gone to war for, Poland and China, Poland was now communist, China would soon be communist, Europe was fractured. The Soviet Union was a giant empire for the first time. How do you call that victory? I mean, these are sort of things I'm, I'm looking at with the book. Um, so it, it was controversial, and I expected, I was looking forward to debating that, because that's how you get your ideas out. I mean, it's hard to read a 400-page book um, carefully, or it's not hard, of course, but you know, it's, it's easier once things get, get picked over. So I was waiting. But the assaults really on the book um, were not about what was in the book. And what was strange was I kept, in fact, in the, in the rebuttal, I kept having to type, this is not in my book. And in fact, it was interesting, uh, an argument, the, the original um, takedown was divided, focused on five points, as if my book could possibly be distilled into five details that I was supposed to have gotten all wrong. Much of the content of this attack was not in my book, including the fifth point, just so I don't bore you to tears, but 20% of the review was, a, was supposedly about, or allegedly about an argument about D-Day um, that is not in my book anywhere. And, it, and other parts included quotations from page numbers that when you go to the page are not there. And so what is this all about? I think, my, my guess, I think that this was an attempt no one could read that review, it was so boring, and you know, I think everyone's eyes glazed, and I think that was the point, and I think it was supposed to, I was told by, um, by sage uh, personages who, who sort of came to look at this because of the attacks on me, they hadn't noticed the book until the attacks on me, so that's a good thing, that it was an attempt to really isolate the book, to isolate me, um, demonization, um, it was extraordinary, and I would say we were talking earlier about Stanton Evans, uh, who is originally a supporter of the book. I had, I had gotten to know him while I was writing the book, and in fact, it's his, um, his uh, uh, endorsement that's on the cover of the book. Um, he was very staunch and, and looked at these things. He had gone through much the same with his McCarthy book from the same people. So there are patterns here. There are things that people don't want us to think about, don't want us to really even debate, which is strange, because if you can knock it down, you know, come, come at me. I'm happy to debate. If you've got a point that we can have a conversation on, that's, that's actually fun. Um, if it's done in a civil way, these were very uncivil attacks, and I was very gratified at the time to have, uh, Stanton Evans wrote a piece called In Defense of Diana West that was a marvelous, um, typical Stan, very, meticulous, methodical discussion of some of the main attacks on the book. Um, and then later, the most exciting thing, really, that happened in the whole, and I have to thank my detractors for it, was um, the great 
famous, probably still famous, even though some of you are so young, uh, Vladimir Bukovsky, who was co-founder of the Soviet dissident movement. Um, he saw the attacks. He'd been attacked by these same people. He's done a lot of archival research and been attacked for it. It's very strange. I mean, the patterns are very strange. Anyway, he and a colleague, uh, a younger Russian writer, uh, ex, ex, you know, a, a, um, uh, a not not quite a, a not a defector. He just left a, a, a ex Russian. Um, they wrote a fantastic um, piece in Breitbart called um, "Why Historians Hate Diana West," and it was an interesting thing because the way they saw it was. This was the conventional wisdom attacking my book, which is flips the conventional wisdom. And so they go through it. It's a it's a really a brilliant essay just to read the the the, the framework and knowledge and depth of, of Bukowski um, on this subject that he knows so well. And uh, he actually wrote two pieces about the book. So that was that was great. And I think that just kind of made it okay again to <clears throat> at least have a debate about the book. Um, it's not that everyone has to buy everything in the book and, and accept everything. <clears throat> I actually hope I included, um, there are almost a thousand endnotes in the book. One of the reasons was my, my editor at St. Martin's Press said, um, <laughs> he said, they're not going to believe you unless you have every single endnote. So it's fair enough. But also because I really hope that people continue this research. I mean, these are endnotes that take you to um, memoirs, letters, congressional hearings, State Department records, you know, all public access stuff. Um, and there's, as I said earlier, there's so much more to do. And I would love some help because um, <laughs> I'm continuing um, in, this, in this quest to try to put it all in a uh, more accessible form because the information's there. But um, I think in some ways Stan's McCarthy book when he wrote it, let's see, he, he died when he was 80 years old this year. So when he, it came out in 2007, he was an elderly man. I think that was a surprise to get the, um, the McCarthy story at this late date. And I think American Betrayal in some ways is a surprise. American Betrayal is the likely, for me, was the likely book to write having in sort of internalized Blacklisted by History. And indeed, Stan and his former colleague, um, also the late Herbert Romerstein, who had been a um, investigator for uh, the House in various guises, House Committee, um, looking at subversion and so on, and uh, communist infiltration in the, probably in the 50s, well, probably 60s, and 70s more. Um, they wrote a book called Stalin's Secret Agents, The Subversion of Roosevelt's Government. And it's amazing how the two books dovetail. I didn't know Stan when he was, as well when he was writing that book, so we weren't really talking, we weren't trading stories about what we were doing, but the books actually mesh. And it's because he considers that book the sequel to McCarthy. The McCarthy book is, were there communists in the government? Answer, yes. And then the next book, as he put it, so what? So that's the so what book, what did they do? And you could say that's the same thing. Um, American Betrayal takes a kind of a broader scope, but it's, it's similar. It's like, what did this do to us? My question is morality. What did this do to us as a people, which is why it's called The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character. It was very hard to come up with a subtitle, but essentially it changed the, the experience with communism, the infiltration, and so on. It changed us. And that's kind of what the book also tries to discuss. Well, I want to thank you for your work. Thank you. Thank for you. It's great. Oh, thank you very much. You have some gifts. Oh, how nice. Thank I want you. To thank you.